qua non ci deve essere più niente, bisogna cominciare subito. Coraggio al lavoro, buttate giù. Dico bene, autore? Sì, grazie. Arrivederci, ragazzi. Ci vediamo in un prossimo video. Lo speriamo. Welcome to Cinema Italia, a podcast dedicated to the world of Italian cinema. Presented by me, John Bleasdale. Everybody and welcome to Cinema Italia. My name is John Bleasdale. I am a writer and film critic and a fan of Italian cinema. And I am delighted to be joined by Massimo Benvenu, who himself is a film critic and also the artistic director of the Biograph Film Festival in Bologna. Uh, and he works in the Eye Museum in Amsterdam as well long, for a long time, Massimo, right? Yes, for about a decade I was there, yes, as a film yeah. programmer, yeah. Excellent. Hi, John. How are you Hi. doing, Massimo? It's good to see you. Uh, I'm good, I'm good. Uh, lots of movies, uh, lots of uh, lots of things to read, and spring is coming, so. Good. Okay, so we saw each other all about a, just over a week ago, just before the end of the Rotterdam Film Festival and you were you were playing a a, a very specific role uh, uh, in the film festival correct oh, yes well uh you know for about uh, 20 years I've been based in the Netherlands and uh, as you said I worked for the for the Eiffel Museum here uh, that was my longest gig uh, but I'm, I'm still based in Amsterdam and so I get involved when it comes to to cinema and uh, especially in Rotterdam. Uh, lately, I've been asked to moderate and sometimes translate uh, the the you know the master classes and the and the you know the, the the introductions made by Italian filmmakers. So I, I sort of babysit them through the Rotterdam um, to the Rotterdam festival. Yeah, and it's it's nice that the new director Vanya Kaljujercic. She has a keen eye on Italian cinema. She's fluent in Italian herself, uh, you know, coming from the former Yugoslavia. So she has, she, she, she speaks Italian. She knows a lot about Italian culture. And she seems to be inviting quite a bit of, uh, of uh, and, 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 you know, not just the more obscure experimental um, filmmakers that Rotterdam used to, uh, used to attract, but also some... Uh, I would say mainstream Italian filmmakers accept the invitation from Vania and, uh, you know, and they, they come to Rotterdam. It's nice to have this new flavor of Italian cinema there. Yeah, and it's mainly thanks to her. And so this year, who were you, who were you babysitting? Uh, this year I was mainly babysitting the Manetti brothers uh, that received a full-fledged retrospective of the work. And uh, they recently rose to international fame because of Diabolic. And that is, uh, we found out how many Diabolic fan, uh, fans there are in the Netherlands. Quite a few, I would say. Uh, but, they also, but they also screened, so the full Diabolic trilogy was there. But they also screened all their uh, lesser seen TV work. And uh, it's interesting. It would, you know, and the Manetti Bros, they are true cinephile people, they are true film lovers. So they were very eager to engage with the audience in conversation. And uh, it was great to see, they were really curious about the, the, the fact that the screenings were packed with people and everybody seemed to like their films, you know, so, so that's nice. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's nice when old films meet new audiences. It's always, it's always interesting, so. That was that. Then, then, then um, I did a little bit with Daniele Lucchetti. Uh, his new film La Confidenza was screened in Rotterdam in the world premiere. Uh, interesting. I think he really wanted to test the waters on on this one and uh, and see how the audience would react. 
and uh, I don't know when is it planned to be released in Italy. And then, of course, the, the big master, uh, Marco Bellocchio, was around. His, his latest film, Rapito, is opening in the Netherlands uh, in, in the end of February. And he was there and he delivered the masterclass. And I was there to help along with, with Vanya, with the festival director herself. Bello. So uh, it was quite a handful, yeah, and, and enjoyable. I, I mean, it's nice when these things happen and you have something to do, you know. <laughs> yeah, when you're not just twiddling your thumbs. Yeah, it sounded yeah. Sounds, sounds great. I mean, I thought Confidence, uh, which I saw um, in Rotterdam, I thought it was one of the strongest Italian films I've seen for a long time. I thought it was excellent, R really, really good. I, to, to be honest with you, I, I loved it. Um, and uh, I... I found uh, I found it uh, a great, great work, and at the same time, I understand that uh, Lucchetti is a bit undecided about what to do with this film because it's very mysterious. Mm. You know, it's not uh, uh, a standard narrative or a standard, you know, uh, period piece or character study. There's a, there's such a such a I would say, you know, it, it, it plays like a thriller. You know? mm. And a lot like a thriller. And uh, you're always trying to figure out uh, where each character stands. But uh, I thought it was a great film. I told I told him uh, how much they loved it. And he said to me, yeah, you know, but I'm still trying to figure out the editing and fiddling with it. I'm like, are you sure? I mean, this oh. looks great. Oh, I... <laughs> it I... sounds great. I wouldn't touch it. I would. I. I think it. It, it felt yeah. very much like a, yeah. a, a pretty, pretty perfect film in and, my. And in you, my you like the score? I mean, it's interesting that I saw it uh, without credits, uh, at the very early screening of the rough cut, and I didn't know that Tom York was the composer, and I thought this score is an interesting homage to like you know nineteen seventies Dario Argento you know, thriller scores, and I'm like, this is Tom York, wow. <laughs> did, but didn't, apparently, he's didn't, wrong. Didn't Tom York do um, Suspiria as well, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Oh. Yes. So he's yeah. got he's got an Italian connection yeah. already there. Apparently, he also has a real Italian connection because much like you, he, he I mean, fairly recently, he also moved to Italy. Ah, right. Okay, there you go. You know, competition, John. <laughs> as long as he doesn't start a cinema podcast, I'm okay. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Uh, yeah, no, I mean, to just describe the film without spoiling it a little bit, it's a kind of a relationship between a teacher and his ex-student, which finishes after uh, getting quite serious for a while. And and then there's a sort of black box mystery that you never quite find out what exactly has gone on, uh, which torments this teacher uh, throughout his life. And it's uh, it's just yeah, I just think I, I love the the way it never truly reveals its hand, and yet at the same time is not frustrating. It's not like oh, there's nothing to it. It's you know, it's the the, the writer hasn't thought it through, um, and it stars Elio Germano, who I think was in another Lucchetti film, Daniele Lucchetti film from, yes. uh, you know, I think they they collaborate quite quite frequently together, or at least they have mm -hmm. done at least once before. So they yeah. they. The the other one as well was a kind of similar psychological drama, but not quite as well. In Italian, we'd say riuscito. It's not quite as successful as I feel this one is. Yeah, yeah, yeah This one plays uh, extremely well because you never know, and uh, it's also interesting how it it handles the subject of of power. You know, this you see this the teacher uh, you know starts gaining more and more recognition. Uh, for his work, he starts getting affiliated with, you know, with with a publishing house and getting, you know, uh, support from, uh, let's say, political support. And yet, there's always this this you know confidence, this secret that he carries inside of him, and uh, that he once told this this pupil of his. And uh, and you never really know if this bomb is going to explode. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, what was it Hitchcock said? Um, you know, put put the bomb beneath, beneath the the table and you know you you've got oh, if, you plant the, if you plant the bomb in the first act, it has to explode in the third act, right? It's yeah. Something like that. Yeah, absolutely. That, that uh, if, if you show a gun in the first reel, then that gun has to reappear somehow. You know? Yeah, yeah, and it's and if it doesn't explode, maybe it's even better. Uh, you know, yeah. maybe it, it goes on and on. It stays in your head. And um, in terms of the Manetti brothers, I saw one of their earliest films was in the um, was in the retrospective, uh, Torino Boys, which is a film of immigrants, and I think it goes back to the very early. I think it's the early nineties. It's a really yeah yes. Yes, very, very early in the career, they made a string of TV movies. And uh, this one you're referring to is uh, puts together, uh, you know, the, the passion for football. I mean, this, there's a group of uh, uh, immigrants, I think, from Nigeria, and they they travel to Rome to to see a, a football game. Or oh, that's the actual, that's the excuse they have to, to, to do this road trip to, to Rome. And uh, but it's interesting how the the Manetti bros they really knew how to pick their their um, their subjects well. I like the, the there's another one that uh, in a way deals with immigration that is called uh, La Riva di Wong, the arrival of Wong, where uh, a, trans a translator gets asked uh, for for an emergency job. She needs to. Do a, a you know the translation from Chinese, and um, and we wonder if this is about illegal immigration. Then we find out that uh, the Chinese-speaking person is an alien, and they're planting an alien invasion for the world. <laughs> <laughs> so they they cleverly put it together in you know, a genre and uh, and cultural observations on. On Italian society, and uh, and you know, I think that that the audience in Rotterdam really like the films because they are extremely well constructed uh, from a narrative standpoint. They really know how to shoot, how to make a film. Yeah, and I appreciate you know the the brothers. Uh, there were lots of questions about how do you work as brothers, you know, like. Yeah, famously the the Coen brothers they they each get to direct one scene, which seems nightmarish to be honest. To have the next now, no, it's my turn. No, it's you. Now <laughs> this is done. Okay, you get the next one. And so the Manetti, the, there is uh, the um, the older one, uh, Marco, is the very talkative one, the one that could not stop talking about cinema. Is the one that talks with the actors mm. and uh, explains the whole thing. And, and Antonio, the, the quiet uh, younger one, is the one that sets up all the technicalities of the shoot. Mm. So it's, it's interesting how you, they separate the work in that way, you know. And and uh, you can totally see that the films there is a, there is a mind that is fully uh, dedicated to create the best you know structure and then the other is the one that has the the ideas i, I don't know how they write together but that's they told us that's how they shoot together and uh, so one is literally in the middle of the set talking to people and the other one is talking to all the the film crew yeah so, it's very left left, a, left brain right brain isn't it yeah yeah a little bit like that and you know the same with the q and a's one was the one making all the jokes and <laughs> a bit like a comic duo, you know, the mm. quiet one and the talkative one. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I was when I was watching Torino Boys, they they came in and introduced it a little bit. And um mm. after it started, they sat down for ten minutes uh and watched yeah. the first ten minutes because they hadn't seen it, the the new yeah. sort of uh version. And they were just chit-chatting to to each other because they were just pointing at things. Oh, yeah, that's okay. No, I mean, that needs to be, you know, a sort of uh, yeah. assessing yeah. the print and the state of the reproduction. Yeah, the, the film nerds, film nerds yeah. to the max. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, it was amazing that uh, uh, for, for the Diabolic uh, Marathon, uh, there were all these aficionados that started asking about uh, 
the the the, the car models that were used. And they they went to say, oh no, but that was an Alfa Romeo, but not from 1973, from 1972. And, uh, you know, we modified the color, but then we found this and that. that. So, I mean, complete uh, attention to every single detail, like, you know, like only the most obsessed of uh, of uh, filmmakers and the most obsessed of, of, of nerd in a positive way, you know. So, so they, 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 found their audience <laughs> yeah and it's so it, as you say it's good to see italian genre cinema having this kind of international impact as well in the sense that you know some of my favorite italian cinema is sergio leone's westerns or dario Argenti's yeah. horror movies and it's hard you know, to, the, to find an equivalent these days you know the story is uh, um uh, last year in rotterdam they screened the uh, uh, the F- La Stranezza, mm. the film by Roberto Andò, you know, with uh, the comic duo Ficare and Picone and, uh, and uh, Tony Servillo. And, and I asked the, uh, Vania, the, the, the director of the festival, said, how did you come across this film? And how did you... And she said to me, very candidly, that it was Marco Bellocchio <laughs> that suggested her to watch it because mm. Marco Bellocchio said to her, you know, it's a very nice film and it's very funny and these two, you know, Karen Piccone make me laugh. And I was like, it's interesting that, you know, you have this, you know, highbrow f- film director and a festival director and they talk about... Uh, and about Italian cinema, and they select a film that was very popular with the movie-going audience. And uh, and the film made to the festival was a big success. Mm. So, you know, refreshing. And uh, as you know, the, the Manetti were here also thanks to Jonah Nazzaro, the, the director of Locarno, that, as you know, is a, is a big fan of uh, Italian genre cinema. And, uh, you know, so the, the new generation of without uh, puzza sotto il naso, so, so less snobbish and with less barriers between uh, highbrow and lowbrow, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I love Jonah and I'm hoping he'll, he's actually said he wants to come on the podcast. So, uh, I'm looking forward to talking to him about that. And I'm hoping he chooses some, some great sort of politeschi yeah. or, or giallo. Probably. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah. Will. I should get somebody to come on and talk about Cannibal Holocaust because that's uh, an Italian oh, horror movie. Oh, there's, a, there's a, I, I, It's funny you mentioned this because there's a great story about uh, about this that happened in Rotterdam. Uh, Marco Manetti had a T-shirt that said Cannibal Holocaust with the with the rating for the film, mm. and uh, and one guy in the audience asked. Uh, what is this T-shirt uh, about? And um, and Marco said, "Do you know this film is a film called The Cannibal Holocaust?" And the guy in the audience replied, "No, I only know Holocaust." <laughs> so it's not he's not gonna, gonna know anything about the the horror movie <laughs> Ruggiero Diodato's uh, yes, famous yes. horror movie. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, you're right, because I thought in a setting filled with film nerds, you can walk around with a t-shirt that says Cannibal Holocaust. But if they don't know the movie, they see a t-shirt that says Holocaust, they're like Yeah. That's that's the <laughs> word that's the word that jumps out. <laughs> you can raise some eyebrows. <laughs> absolutely absolutely and bellocchio's uh i mean that guy i interviewed him last autumn and he's having an amazing year uh, rapito his netflix series uh about the moro kidnapping uh esterno notte it's it, he's just fantastic uh it's very ex- it's, it's interesting how excited he still is about making films yeah and uh, considering that, you know, he'd be making them for you know, uh, 60 years. Yeah, since so. the 19, 
early early 60s late 50s early 60s yeah and uh, uh he recently uh, um, I, I think he's one of the youngest i think he was 25 when he made the uh, uh Puni in tasca yeah 1965 was uh, was yeah. the date yeah and, and i think he's from 1939 or something so he's is and you know he belongs to the Orson wells uh, spell you had to be you have to direct your first film before you were 25 right because west made citizen kane uh, when he was 25 and so that that generation had this goal you know i had to make my first film before before i turned 26 and uh i think bernardo bertolucci even made two films before (laughs) before he turned 26 and uh, he still has a lot of energy and uh you know he's he's, i think he found he uh, uh, you know, for a long period of time, he was not so popular, and uh, everything came back with Buongiorno Notte, mm. Mm. Uh, the first film that he made about the kidnapping of Mauro, that all of a sudden uh, gave uh, the audience, let's say, a new generation, like like our generation, uh, you know, a glimpse into this uh, this filmmaker. Because all the all the previous films were a bit, you know, under the radar, not as popular. Mm. That film, uh, when it played in Venice, uh, and then family got snubbed of the film awards, um, and he said, "I'm not gonna, I'm, I'm never gonna go back to the Venice Film Festival again," you know, because after this, and then of course he went back multiple times, and uh, but that film was like a breath of uh, fresh air. And he became uh, popular again and uh, started making this, uh, you know, made Vincere and uh, registered in matrimony mm. you know, and, and found a new popularity. Yeah. And, uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's never too late to, to, <laughs> yeah. to become, a, to become a, a successful mainstream filmmaker. Because right now I think he is very much into the mainstream. Absolutely. I mean, it's well worth going back and watching if, if listeners haven't seen it, um, his first film, Punya in Tasca, because it's, uh, I mean, talking about psychological sort of thrillers and it, it's yeah. it's right up there. It's, it does loads of things, loads yeah. of interesting things, it's like a new wave film, uh, yeah. but directed in Italy. He told this story about... Uh, uh, because he's there, is you know, he's so excited about his films that you don't realize uh, his age and pedigree. Mm-hmm. And then he starts talking about the Punin Tasca and uh, and Latina Vicina, and then he tells you that uh, um, when he met Louis Buñuel, Louis Buñuel say to him that he didn't like it putting in Tasca. <laughs> You're like, <laughs> whoa. And then the, the Latina Vicina was, you know, tied at the Venice Film Festival with Jean-Luc Godard. You go like, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your <laughs> contemporaries. Yeah. <laughs> I am one handshake away from Louis Buñuel. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Let me shake the hand that shook Jean-Luc Godard's hand. <laughs> You know, it's like we, you can go back to. <laughs> you're, you're, you're touching history right there. Yeah, then you realize that uh, how, how long this guy has been around and that, you know. Absolutely. He battled, he battled in the trenches with, with these guys that are pretty much the, you know, the people that invented the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember being in Venice Film Festival once and it was um Bernardo Bertolucci was head of the jury and he was not it was not particularly well at the time it has to be said and uh, he was in a wheelchair and he came into um one of the screenings that I was attending and it was in the Sala Perla which is quite a small room and so he was sitting quite close to me and I was just sort of when the lights went down I was just thinking I'm watching a film with Bernardo Bertolucci and that is kind of but that's kind of amazing. And then like about an hour into the film, I suddenly heard this. 
<laughs> coming from beside me, and Bertolucci had nodded off in his uh, in his chair and was <laughs> snored through the whole film. Yes, well, <laughs> also legends need to sleep. Yes, yes, and the salapola is very conducive. It's very comfortable. Yeah, 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 it's a totally understandable. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I once saw a film in Locarno with Kylie Minogue in the audience. Oh, well, you beat me. Okay, <laughs> it's not a competition, but if it was, you won. <laughs> to, each, to each his own, John. Yeah. No, it was fun because it was um, it was a romantic comedy. No, it wasn't Street Fighter then with Van Damme. Play, playing, it was, a, it was a romantic comedy playing in the main square. And Kylie Minogue got an award or something. And she then she went off the stage and she took a seat, you know, in the audience. To watch the film, and uh, and it, it, I, I could distinguish her laughter, you know, from ev everybody else's. <laughs> Thinking, oh, this is Kylie's laughing. <laughs> <laughs> I remember, I remember the that like ten minutes before the end of the film, uh, the bodyguard approached her, like you know, right. if you want to leave now. And she, and she gestured and she said, you know, no, I'll watch the film and, uh, and pay the consequences of fame. Yeah. No, no worries. It's, it's a nice audience. So she watched the film, the credits, then, she, you know, shook hands, signed autographs and left. Oh, brilliant. And why am I comparing Bernardo Bertolucci with Kylie Minogue? I don't know. They're, they're both legends. They're both legends. There's <laughs> <laughs> no, no apology necessary, I think. I think we're both we're both very impressed by that. I I saw um uh, natural bomb killers. Mm. I saw natural bomb killers in Venice uh, with Bernardo Bertolucci in the audience. I remember. Wow, that. there you go. There you go. Oh, so that's it's a long okay. time so, ago. Yeah. So we're both we're we've both Bernardo Bertolucci, but only one of us has Kylie Minogue. Uh, that's uh, yeah. Sorry, only one Kylie, but you yeah. can catch up. And, uh... Well, as we're speaking about legends, I also wanted to ask you something about one of my favourite filmmakers, who I know you have worked uh, with in the past uh, in terms of you've you've um, written about him extensively, Peter Weir. Um, yes. a wonderful filmmaker, Australian filmmaker. So we're yes. slightly diverging from Cinema Italia right now. But yeah, yeah. Um, one of my favorite films that actually I put in my Sight and Sound top 10 was Master and Commander. Oh, wow. Yeah, no. yeah. And I, I, sw I swapped out Lawrence of Arabia just because I wanted to update my top 10 a little bit. I mean, huh. frankly, Lawrence of Arabia could easily sneak back in. On, on any given day but i thought okay what's a film that i like as much that's a period film and i thought well master and commander i will watch any day of the week you know makes absolute sense john well when is this podcast coming out because you know i'm uh, i'm just uh, about to unite with the with the, the master himself peter weir ah friday where this podcast will go out on friday the okay yes so uh, well the news is almost out is mm. out for the aficionados that uh, uh, Peter Weir himself will make a special appearance uh, uh, in Europe. I don't think he's been uh, introducing public screenings in Europe uh, for a number of years now. Definitely, we go back at least, uh, I think 2016 was the last time that there was a retrospective of his works at his presence in Europe. And um, uh, the story goes that the Cinémathèque Française in Paris uh, w wanted to invite him for a very long time and never really succeeded. And uh, recently they, um, um, they approached me uh, a few months ago when Hollywood was still on strike. Mm. And they said to me, you know, we have this festival coming along in March where we always invite a high-profile filmmaker and uh, this year all the working high profile filmmakers are waiting to see the outcome of the strike and so we decided to go back and try to invite Peter Weir and uh, would you would you you know help us <laughs> mm, yeah act as an intermediary as, as yeah so I explained to them what to do 
and uh, who to get in touch with, and they carefully did, and uh, and he said yes, and then they told them they told him that uh, I was the mastermind behind the operation Peter Weir, and he said, "Oh, well, Massimo is there. I'm fine." <laughs> so I'm introducing, I'm, I'm introducing a couple of screenings there in Paris uh, next month. And I cannot wait to to see him. And the closing film of the event will be Master and Commander. Oh man! And uh, I think Master and Commander was, um, you know, I, I always put it together like this. Uh, with, with Truman Show was mm. the highest peak he could get when it comes to unconventional filmmaking, mm. Mm. something very bizarre, twisted, and unique, like like most like you know. Quite a few of his films are, are I would say, not, not, uh, you know, not the most uh, 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 conventional. Mm. And uh, um, Master and Commander, I think, is the highest peak of his career when it comes to, you know, straightforward storytelling mm. in the classical vein of, uh, of uh, you know, Hollywood cinema and, uh, you know, just big adventure cinema and uh, it's something that he always has and in his uh, in his uh, uh, bag of tools you know when uh, uh, in in the 90s when steven spielberg uh, started dreamworks you know his own studio and wanted to invite filmmakers over he had a meeting with each with every single filmmaker that was acting uh, that was successful those days and uh, Steven Spielberg uh, invited Peter Weir for a meeting and said to him, um, "You made Witness. Witness is is uh, the best uh, classical Hollywood film made in recent times, and it's made by you. That you're an Australian. Mm. <laughs> Can you make some more?" <laughs> And uh, I think I also recently heard uh, Wes Anderson. Uh, you know when it, those those videos when you walk around a, um, a video tech. Oh, like the Criterion yeah. Closet sort yeah, of thing. Yeah. And uh, there is one in France, and he said, you know, he picked up a DVD of Witness and said, you know, this is uh, just a perfect film. He said, yeah. You know. Yeah, not but just it's just perfect, you know, in the way it's told. Uh, I saw that and, at the cinema as a kid as well, and was yeah, just blown yeah. away. John Book, uh, Harrison John Ford, Book. yeah. yeah. And uh, the Master and Commander, I think, was that classic uh, storytelling, you know, to the max. Mm. Mm. The most difficult uh, shoot of his career. Uh, um, Lots of personalities, lots of, lots of weather, lots of lots of lots of water, mm. and uh, you know every film shot at sea is filled with problems and with mistakes and with uh, continuity errors and with uh, you know over budget and this one stayed within <laughs> within the the limits and uh, and what a great story you know in the end uh, the 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 clash that he described, uh, you know, the clash between, uh, you know, uh, uh, duty and uh, and and, uh, and you know and personalities, the clash between uh, uh, nature and uh, orders from from men, you know, and uh, you know, culture and society and nature. And uh, in my, you know, Tarantino made the Tarantino universe. Yeah. Uh, Peter Weir didn't make uh, uh, a Peter Weir universe. He made the Peter Weir history book mm. that tells about, you know, uh, human, human life uh, for two centuries. Mm. Uh, mm. The, Started uh, in the 19th century, you know, 1805 with Master and Commander, and 1900 with Picnic at Hanging Rock. There are, you know, observations on how, you know, 
we as humans started uh, dealing with, you know, finding our place in the world, making societies and the clashes that go uh, with with it. And uh, and went on to the 20th century and then, you know, to the future of uh, the Truman Show. Yeah, and yeah. From the two, I always call it, uh, you know, in my mind, um, my... Uh, what's what's the word of that? The, my logbook, you know, mm. the, the it's called Two Centuries of Peter Weir. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, um, yeah, and you've got the Second World War with Gallipoli, and um... yeah, uh, yeah, you you have you have World War One, you have World War Two, you have the way back about the, the gulags in Siberia. And then you know the the countercultural revolution. You know that point society is really about uh, is really about the sixties, uh, even though it sets in the late fifties. But it's really about finding you know the new voice, uh, and um, you know, and uh, the consumerism of the eighties with the mosquito cost. And uh, so, master and commander could very well be the last. Is the first in my. <laughs> In in my in my book and mm. uh, and what a great humanist, what a great observer of uh, the human experience, and uh, what else to say? I, yeah, I, like, I'm I'm giving I've given you the philosophical answer. That that, that... giving you the anecdotes of uh, of uh, you know how difficult it was to work with Russell Crowe. <laughs> 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 but I think we could just take that as red. I think that's not uh that's not not, not gonna be any revelation. I once asked him how it was to work with Russell Crowe and he said to me, um you lock yourself in a room with a cobra. <laughs> that's perfect. That's perfect. It's it's a, and then you learn to live with it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god oh my god that's that's amazing and i love i love that that sort of broad sweeping sort of thesis on on peter weir and, and also it, it sort of says something to what i i kind of always feel that is lacking with tarantino in that he's he's inside that that it's like watching a kid play with his own diorama you know any conclusions he comes to whether they're valid or invalid are really only valid or invalid within the diorama he's already created. You know, they're not, yeah. uh, how much I can apply this to the universe outside. Yeah. It, yeah. I don't know, you know. Well, you know, I think the best, uh, I'm recently, I know this sounds strange because I've been devoted to uh, <laughs> to the subject for you know, more than 30 years, but I, I started studying again uh, my notes for, for this Paris retrospective. And um, one thing that stuck me, and uh, I think is one of the greatest differences between the filmmakers of today and this earlier generation, is that uh, um, if you look back at Peter Weir's career, he was 31 when uh, he made Picnic at Hanging Rock. Mm. That was sort of like the moment when he became uh, a name and sort of like okay, okay this is going to be my profession I'm going to be making movies you know and uh, uh, and if you see everything that is done before he has done quite a lot of life a lot of living a lot of traveling uh, a lot of uh, trips uh, to Europe uh, backpacking and uh, a lot of humble jobs he was uh, he, he, for a time he was making bread deliveries for a bakery, and uh, he was a swimming instructor, and he was a real estate agent, and, uh, and you know in a time in the sixties where lots of things were happening around the world, so he witnessed also a countercultural change, and uh, but then he had a, he already had a wife and two kids. Well, you know, th there was a lot of life under his belt when he then started having the 
luxury of a of a career as a film director, and yeah. uh, I think that counts. And he became actually, um, you know, a cinephile uh, afterwards. I mean, he obviously loved films, and in the sixties he was a big fan of uh, Polanski and uh, Joseph Lozzi, Antonioni, you know. And uh, you can see that in the early films. But he started really became uh, literate in film, in, in, in the, with the film canon uh, later on. And, uh, you know, he, he, he stopped for a couple of years only to study film by himself. Mm-hmm. And then he made Gallipoli, you know, that is his first uh, real big canvas adventure uh, uh, film, you know, in a traditional narrative in a way. And uh, you can see that he had built that, and uh, so nothing wrong with Tarantino. I, I love, I love his films, and uh, but you can totally see the difference between growing up in uh, in a video store and and growing up in a place of scarcity like Australia in in the forties and fifties and sixties. With uh, not not much of a TV system, not that many films, maybe some comic books, some radio, some rock and roll, and uh, you know, I mean, he, he saw the Beatles live. <laughs> <laughs> so you shook live. you shook the hand of someone who has seen the Beatles. <laughs> yeah, and you know what he said to me? Uh huh. He said to me, "You couldn't hear a single thing." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he no, he, he literally saw them live he didn't hear them live he just saw them live yeah he saw them live with his two younger younger sisters uh-huh. that were screaming off the top of their lungs and uh, he said to me I was there I wanted to hear the music and it was just endless shouting but you know that's um, as I said lots of life yeah, lots yeah. and lots and lots of life before, uh, you know, and, and that's something that you bring to your films. And then when you te- when you have to make films in the about uh, the human experience, you know, and not just uh, you know cartoons, uh, it's uh, you can put your li- your living in the films in the characters that shows. Yeah, absolutely. And it goes all the way through. And and speaking of films which have a lot of life in them, your uh, recommended sort of Italian film that we we, we can talk about now is uh, Dino Risi's La Moglie del Prete, starring uh, Sofia Loren and Marcello yes. Mastroianni. Yes, that's, uh, that's an interesting choice. Huh? Yeah. Well, I thought I thought all the classics were done. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think that uh, I explain you the the reason for my choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I I believe that in the in, in every Italian family uh, growing up, you know, in in the seventies, in the eighties, with commercial TV showing film after film. Uh, you you build what Natalia Ginsburg uh, called the lexico familiare. Mm. There is a lexicon uh, that is also made not just of the way each member of the family talks or the expressions or the references to relatives, but also uh, it relates to the movies that you watch together. Absolutely, in, a, in a, as a group, as a as a family unit, and uh, La Moglie del Prete is uh, one of the few films uh, of the successful films uh, shot in Padova, which is pretty much my hometown. Uh, I mean, the, the closest uh, big city to, to the village where I was born. And uh, my father uh, had seen uh, the shoot. He remember seeing the... Uh, uh, scenes being shot in Prat de la Valle, which is the big, biggest uh, square in Padova, when uh, when he was younger and he started working in Padova, 
working for NL, the, the National Electricity Company. And uh, there was a place that he was having lunch in Prato della Valle. And he remembered for weeks and weeks and weeks seeing Sofia Loren and Marcello Mastroianni uh, and the whole film crew. So he would tell us about this. And, um, and the film itself is set in the region of Veneto. And there are lots of character actors speaking in the local dialect. And this always resonated as, you know, this film is uh, from Padova. No matter the fact that it stars Marcello Mastroianni and Sofia Loren and, uh, and directed by Dino Risi. Uh, but it was, you know, it, so that was, of course, the first sketch. Right. The second one is that uh, um, it, it's a, so it, it's a very funny film. Yes. And it makes fun of uh, it makes fun of the conventions of Italian society and a certain kind of conservatorism and. Uh, and that makes it, you know, Veneto, unfortunately, as you might know, uh, used to be very conservative. And uh, and this film sort of was a bit of a satire to, to uh, the old ways. The third reason is that, that I like the film is that there is a gigantic mistake in the film. Okay. And uh, and yet, uh, is uh, the film is able to get away with it. The big mistake that I see now, you know, after some experience, I say, is the casting of Sofia Loren. Right. Because you know, this film again is in the verge. I think uh, it's uh, 1970, 1971. So. Yeah, it's nineteen yeah, it's really about uh, the clash of a new culture um, against the old culture. And the old culture is represented by the priest, played by Marcello Mastroianni. And the new culture is represented by this young, liberated girl. Um, you know, that she was, she, she is a wannabe singer and she's. And this girl, which should have been played by a much younger actor, possibly I would say um, that the perfect casting at the time would have been Catherine Spark. Mm. So, mm. Some, let's say the role that from La Voglia Matta, you know. Uh, so that kind of uh, young ingenue and uh, rebellious, uh, liberating free spirit girl is played by Sofia Loren <laughs> that you know that adds a little extra there is an extra sour to the character mm. because there is a sense of uh, disillusionment that you know she has not really made it in her career and time is running out and she lives with her parents and all and on the other hand I think the character could have been stronger if played by a younger actor. But I always see the scene uh, of uh, the screenplay being delivered to Mr. Ponti's office uh, and uh, say, okay, we have this script. It's, uh, the, the, it's titled the, the Priest's Wife. It stars Marcello Mastroianni as the priest, but the the lead, the lead, you know, the title role, and and he would say, of course, Sophia, you know, because that yeah, was yeah, we've got he, Sophia, that was yeah. his wife. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he could not get, a, he could not let this script get away with it without putting his wife in the in the title role, you know. And of course, I think obviously the you know, Marcel and Sophia were the golden couple of Italian cinema, and so. The idea was to make it uh, become a successful film like Ieri Oggi Domani and all the other. I think they made five, six films together. Yeah, and, Bo uh, Boccaccio, Anni Settanta, yeah, and uh, yeah. Marriage Italian Style. Yeah, yeah. So 
this one was not as successful, I think, mm. uh, even though I it must have gotten uh, distributed. I think it was distributed in the US by United Artists. And, uh, but nevertheless, you know, even with this, let's say, the, the big movie star in the room, <laughs> you know, Sophia Loren, in the middle of it, maybe a bit out of place, it's, uh, it's still all strong. And, yeah, uh, yeah, it's got a real. It's it's it definitely. I definitely see what you mean about the younger, the younger sort of zippier countercultural person. Um, I mean, you could argue that if if this film had been made in 1960, when uh, you know uh, Masrayani did La Dolce Vita as well, if they'd both been younger, it might have been. In, it might be interesting as well. I mean, just yeah. just for uh, briefly, if if no one has. Uh, seen the film it essentially it's a a woman who is disappointed in love disappointed in a career and she f- tries to commit suicide she phones the suicide helpline and uses it as a helpline essentially to help her kill herself instead of being dissuaded and uh the priest on the other hand, end of the who's trying to counsel her out of this is uh Masrayani and um, one thing leads to another and they end up sort of falling in love with each other. And it sort of becomes a bigger satire on how the church and people generally react to their relationship as he seeks to get um, sort of uh, seeks to leave the priesthood without being so excommunicated, I guess, is the um, so. So it's it's it it goes beyond simply being a sort of romance uh, and and so, as you say hits f- quite a few satirical targets quite well um, yep. and it, I, I was kind of surprised at how how sharp it was against the Catholic Church. It's uh, I think it portrays the Church, the Italian Church, uh, in a much better way than. Uh, uh, not in a positive way, I say, in a better way than other uh, possibly more political films. Mm. Because it really portrays not just uh, the way the church functions at the high level, but really that feeling that this is part of society, you know, and it's difficult to get away from it because it is the 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 moral of uh, of uh, of the population it's it's there it's 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 uh, mixed it's inside the uh, it's inside society you cannot get you cannot get get away with you cannot get rid of it mm, mm. So there, you're, a... you're born within it and you're sort of trapped it's in your DNA and uh, yeah, yeah. yeah and the... uh, it's the, the, the the ending is a very sad one, but it's also very, uh, you know, um, it, 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 if you think about it, it was very strong at the time. It is still very strong now, you know, because it's out of, you see that because of these moral standards, then, you know, it influences uh, all aspects of society, including not just personal freedom you know but uh, so you you go in for the laughs and you go in for the for the um, for the stars and in my case for the location yes because I know every single part of uh, every single shot you know I know every corner of it and uh, and then you stay for this big teaching about uh, you know Italian society and uh, you know and sort of like the traps that are within it and uh, it's a great film yeah it's absolutely it uh, it played a lot on TV as I was growing up and uh, I don't know if now it has any you know status. But um, it would be nice to for it to be rediscovered, and uh, yeah, so that's why I decided to mention this film. Also, because I th- I thought 
it was just going to be mine. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody else will choose it. It's just going to yeah. be. And also, you know, as I said, I always make um, uh, a list. You know, there are the great masterpieces that uh, are part of the canon of cinema. But then, you know, one one of the great things about films is that sometimes there is a film that comes to you the right moment, the right time doesn't need to be a masterpiece, but it gives you that kind of comfort, or it gives you that kind of, you know, just spend two hours with it. And uh, and uh, maybe there are also films, again, the, the people that uh, um, that you watch with. Mm. Uh, there are films that I remember watching with my brother, watching with my father, you know, and, and somehow maybe they're not, uh, they're not in anybody's top tens, but it's really about the experience of them and and with whom do you experience them with. I One of the exercises I used to give to my students when I was trying to teach how to be a film critic is, uh, you know, one was to write a review without telling the plot. Yeah, so only sure. so only the emotions and without telling the title and then see if anybody would guess what the movie was. And the other one uh, was to describe the experience of watching a movie uh without again telling anything about the movie but just telling the experience and why it meant so much to you mm, mm. you know because i think that you know film criticism uh, you should learn that you know there are qualities that the film you can write about and uh, as I call, the intrinsic qualities as you were saying rhetorics you know you can fill your page with it no worries but try to see also what is out there and completely your own personal opinion and how the environment, uh, your mood, uh, your feelings can contribute to the experience and mm -hmm. write them down. You, know, it has, you learn about writing and you also learn about yourself. Yeah, yeah. And you learn That's how... So how 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 you know you interact with films as well you know that it's an yeah. interaction it's well, not a... know, i think that uh, I, I remember once this uh, like another example i always give you know the, um there was one summer night maybe 40 years ago and uh, my brother had injured himself he was on a cast mm. and uh, his leg was uh, lying on the couch and so we would not uh, go out that that evening, and uh, but there was a, a nice, you know, simple American film on TV, and we watched it. And you know, for uh, for the first time in a few days after this accident, uh, you know, we could laugh, and uh, you know how nice it was, you know. And so, if I had seen that film in a different uh, situation, maybe it would have been different. But that film. You know, this, for example, always has a special meaning to me because I watched it that evening with my brother, with my brother just, you know, lying there and suffering. And then this film came on TV and cheered us up. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So it, it can also be that, you know. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think there's also something to be said for understanding that the experience you have watching a film might um, only partly have something to do with the film itself you know it's you know i i there are loads of films that i love to watch really enjoy watching and i know are objectively not good films you know yeah. i mean even like the james bond films I, there's, there's there's very few of them that that even i would put them with sort of martin scorsese's definition of marvel that they're kind of roller coaster events rather than films you know they yeah. don't they don't really do what films are supposed to do and yet and yet, yeah. and yet, I like roller coasters. <laughs> and yet, uh, you know, 
you're a kid that uh, you watch the the latest James Bond and uh, it it helps yeah. you know it uh, it uh, can bring thrills and fun or you know maybe you know turn a lazy turn a, a boring Saturday afternoon into a uh, a, a decent one, a reasonable yeah, yeah, one. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Exciting. Yeah, so. Massimo, we've absolutely run the gamut of all conversation from um, from Rotterdam to Paris, from yeah. the beginning of the 19th century to the future, and yeah. from, from the wife to the priest. So, um, yep. <laughs> yeah, John, it's always a pleasure to talk movies with you. Uh, you're a great pal, and uh, we could uh, go on for ages. And, uh, you know, so, but for now, you know, till the next one. Yeah, you, you're more than welcome whenever you like, Massimo. I'd love to talk I'd to you again. Happy to, I'd be happy to, you know, it's always a pleasure uh, to, talk, to talk cinema with like-minded individuals. And uh, again, I, and also to exercise my English. <laughs> <laughs> Take care, man. Cheers. Arrivederci ragazzi, ci vediamo in un prossimo film. Lo speriamo.